Um, Again, my name is David. I'm the lead pastor here if you're visiting with us. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, This summer, we've been going through a series called We Believe, uh, Affirming the Apostles' Creed. And so each week, we're looking at a different statement from the Apostles' Creed, considering what it teaches us about uh, the triune God that we worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so over the first few weeks, we've really been focused on uh, the person of God the Father and, and discovering who he is, that he is Uh, God the Father Almighty, uh, maker of heaven and earth. And this week, we're going to turn our attention to uh, the person of Jesus. And I just love the songs that we were singing this morning because they so focus our attention on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And so just I'm excited for us to look together at the second member of the Trinity. As we turn to this phrase, it begins this whole section uh, it's really interesting. If you look at the creed like a sandwich, you got the Father and the Spirit, and then the meat of it is about Jesus. So the focus is Jesus. So for the coming weeks, we're really going to be focused on who Jesus is and what he's done. But we begin with this statement, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. The fundamental question that I want us to consider this morning is who is Jesus? And the creed is pointing us to what God's word teaches us about who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, he is the Son, and he is the Lord. So I want us to look at each of those titles um, that we're presented with in the creed as we look at scripture together. So if you would, grab a a Bible, if you've got uh, your Bible, if you don't, grab one of those blue Bibles near you and open up to the Gospel of Matthew, those words I just read, Matthew 16 13 through 16 is where we're going to focus, and really on verse 16. Um, That is really the focus this morning. So let me just read that as you're turning there again. Jesus, when he came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man, another title for Jesus. And he said, they said to him, some are saying John the Baptist, others are saying Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus follows that up by saying to them, asking them another question. He asks his disciples, okay, that's who other people are saying I am, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter, always the first to jump in, cries out, you are the Christ. Not I think you're the Christ. He, he declares, you are the Christ, son of the living God, the son of the living God. And so Jesus answers him, blessed are you. Uh, this is not flesh and blood that's revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So right here in Matthew 16, we've got two of those titles, as it were, from the creed that appear right here in this chapter alone. So I just want to look at, at each one of those that we've got here in Matthew 16. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Uh, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? So sometimes we kind of make that assumption. They just go together all the time, Jesus Christ. But Jesus actually is telling us something very important about himself with the word Christ. Jesus Christ comes from the word Greek word Christos. Christos uh, is a title that literally means the anointed one. It's the Greek word for anointed one. In the Old Testament, prophets and priests and kings, most importantly, uh, were anointed ones. 
Um, that's how they're described. They were Christos uh, in, uh, in the Greek. And so to call Jesus Christ, to call him the anointed one, is to understand Jesus within the context of the whole story of the Bible. And that's really important for us to kind of get our heads around it. To say Jesus is the Christ is to understand him as the long-awaited Savior King of Israel. It's to embed him in the story of Israel and the Bible's story from Revelation all the way back to Genesis. So the Bible tells the story of God's plan, in other words, to save and redeem the world. And in the Old Testament, we discover that God's plan is to overcome evil in the world and to save the world from evil and from sin by what? By raising up an anointed king. That's God's plan. And so what's interesting is the Hebrew word for anointed is uh, Meshuach, which in Hebrew is Messiah. So Messiah is the word for anointed in the Hebrew. And this, again, points us back to the promise that God has made all through the history of Israel from King David forward. To King David, he promised that there would be a Messiah or a Savior King from his descendants who would come from his line, a king who would confront both earthly and spiritual powers of evil and provide deliverance, not only for the people of Israel, but for the nations, for the world. This would be the king of kings, and all those who accepted him as king would be able to take refuge in him. So Peter, in other words, when he says this, he's got all of that in his mind. He says, like many in his day, I'm waiting for the Christ, for the Meshuach, for the Messiah, for the Savior King, and I think you're him. Jesus, I think you are the Christ, and I believe the day has come you are him. That's what Peter's saying when he calls him the Christ. Now, Peter didn't understand this at the time, and this gets kind of revealed to us as we continue through the Gospels, but he would soon discover, like the other apostles, that Jesus was a different kind of Savior King than many or all really expected. Namely, that, that Jesus was not only the one who came to save us, but he came as the one who would suffer for us. Through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus defeated sin and death and offers forgiveness and new life to helpless and hopeless humanity. And so this idea is central to the story of the gospel, this idea of Jesus as the Christ, the long-awaited Savior King. Now, I think, at a, at kind of a, I think we can get that, but I think like getting that in some ways is a little bit hard for us, especially as kind of you know, those who inhabit a, a modern democratic world. Connecting with a long-awaited king can feel a little bit tricky. So this word Christ, I feel like, has a little bit of distance for, for us. and can be hard to really get our heart engaged with, which is why I, I really like what Dale Bruner uh, says in his commentary on Matthew. I, I think this just helps me get at it at that visceral level a little bit more. He says, a modern-day declaration of Jesus as the Christ would be to say Christ means the answer. Capital, he puts it in all caps, the answer. Jesus is the answer. That's what Peter is declaring when he says, you are the Christ. Bruner goes on to say, Jesus, you are the answer. You are the point of it all. You are the last word. You are the meaning of it all. You are it. You are it, Jesus. You are everything we've been waiting for and longing for. That's what it means that he's the Christ. So, when we say Jesus is the Christ, that's what we're saying we believe. What about the second title? Jesus is the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Son. 
It's interesting in the Bible, um, Jesus isn't the only one called the Son of God. Uh, there's numerous different uses of that phrase, the Son of God. Others are called sons of God in the Bible. Adam is called a son of God. Angels, prophets, the nation of Israel itself. In fact, all those who put their faith in Jesus are called sons of God. But Jesus is not just a son of God. Right? Jesus is the son of God. He is unique in his sonship. How is he unique? Three ways he's unique. First, he's always been the son. He's always been the son. Jesus was not created. He didn't begin to exist when he was born to Mary, born into this world. He has always been and he always will be with God the Father as the son. So he exists eternally. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning through him. All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Colossians 1.17, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's not true of anyone else who has ever been called the son of God, just of Jesus. So Jesus was unique uh, in that he's always been the son. He's unique in that he, his authority and power. He's unique in his authority and power as the son of God. Other people did signs and miracles, but Jesus' authority was unique. And as you read through the gospels, you, you begin to see this. His authority extended from his teaching. He had authoritative teaching. People said that all the time. He teaches with authority. All the way to, to his interactions with people and to the natural world. His, his power and authority almost just exuded from him. Like God at creation, he spoke reality into existence. He healed he did signs. He raised people from the dead. He commanded storms. He delivered people from demons. In fact, the demons feared him. The demons feared him. They know who he is, right? They know his power and authority as the son of God, and they fear him because he has authority over them. So he has unique authority and power, and then Jesus has a unique relationship with God the Father. Jesus has a unique relationship with God the Father. At Jesus' baptism, God the Father himself said, this is my son in whom I am pleased, with whom I love. And Jesus talked about God and talked with God like no one ever had. His disciples saw that. They, they, they witnessed that. They saw that Jesus had this profound level of affection and intimacy and trust with God the Father. He loved to call God his father, his Abba. And so we're told that not only did he have this relationship with the Father, he was, he was um, uh, full of the Spirit. And so we get this picture of Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, in this amazing, unique relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus the Christ is also the Son of God. That's what we mean when we say that, those three things. And then finally, the Creed says Jesus is Lord. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lord? Again, I think it can be easy to kind of breeze past this. The Lord is used abundantly in the New Testament. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. We see this with Jesus all the time. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so it'd be easy to kind of just miss the significance of it because of its use with Jesus. And sometimes it just means master or sir. It can mean that. But at times, it means way more than that. So much more, that, in fact, that Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, says this about 
the title of Jesus as Lord. In Philippians 2, he says, Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, Paul says, Jesus is the Lord of all people and of everything, and one day the whole world, all of creation will acknowledge this. Now where this title of the Lord, I think, becomes really powerful is when you connect it again with the whole story of the Bible. When you begin to understand what the Old Testament is teaching us about this word Lord. So the Hebrew word for Lord is Adonai, and it refers to the name of God. So Yahweh, the name of God, that was abbreviated, and it was considered so sacred that the, the, those who recorded the name of God didn't want to put it in writing, so they would use the word Adonai, Lord. So whenever you see the all caps, L-O-R-D, in the Old Testament, that's what it's telling you. It's referring to Yahweh. And so this word Adonai was used in the Old Testament to refer to Yahweh, the Lord. And then in the New Testament, the word for Lord Adonai becomes the Greek Kyrios. And in fact, when the Old Testament's translated from the Greek, from the Hebrew into the Greek, one of the things that happens, this is around 200 BC, is they use the word Kyrios for Yahweh. So all of that means this. It means, in other words, when the New Testament calls Jesus Lord, it's explicitly connecting it with the language of the Old Testament for Yahweh. It's talking about God himself. To say, in other words, that Jesus is Lord is to declare that Jesus is God. That's what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. And make no mistake about it, this was a subversive and dangerous claim to make in Peter's day. We're told, interesting, that this conversation with Peter and Jesus and the disciples, it takes place outside of a town. What's the name of the town? You remember? Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea, does it sound like anything? Caesar. It was named for Caesar. Right? So it was named for the ruler of the Roman Empire. That's where this conversation is taking place, and it's no coincidence. Geography here matters. It's a city named for Caesar himself. The Roman Empire was ruled over by Caesar, and he was the Lord. He was Adonai. He was Kyrios. And he was to be worshipped as the Lord. And so what you've got here is you've got Peter saying these words in the shadow of a city named for the Caesar over the Roman Empire who is declaring that actually he's not the Lord. Jesus, you are the Lord. You are the Lord. And to say that was to deny that Caesar was the Lord. It was to take a risk with his own life. It was a scandalous and risky thing to say, and I would argue it still is. It still actually is. If we understand what we're saying when we say Jesus is Lord, it is a risky and scandalous thing to say. Why? Because this is what it means. It means that Jesus is not just a myth or a story, that Jesus is not just a great teacher or a great moral example. It means Jesus is more than the Lord of my heart. It's to say that Jesus is more powerful than any earthly authority. It's to say that what he commands matters more than my rights 
or my preferences more than social or political allegiances. It's to say not all religions are equal. It's to say faith is not private. It's to say there's no such thing as secular versus spiritual. It is to say the physical world matters to God. It's to say all of those things. And I will tell you, almost all of that is offensive to the world around us today. It is offensive. It's subversive. It's counter to the move of our culture. Abraham Kuyper famously once said it this way. He said, to say Jesus is Lord is to say this, there's not one square inch in the whole dominion of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's mine. He's the Lord. He's the Lord. And so to say that Jesus is Lord is to declare victory over sin and death in the name of Jesus. It's to warn people of the coming judgment apart from Christ. And it's to invite those around us to find joy and peace and life, life to the full, life that we were made for in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our day, that's scandalous. In our day, that is offensive and it is costly. And so when we answer this question, who is Jesus, we answer with the truth of the Bible, that we believe Jesus Christ is God's only son, our Lord. That's what we say when we say the creed, and that's what we believe. So here's the, here's the question for us then. Who do you say that I am? Jesus is asking us the same question he asked the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And the way we answer that question makes all the difference. Knowing Jesus is Christ's son and Lord matters. And why does it matter? Let me just give two thoughts on why I think it matters. First, I think it matters. I feel like so much of what we were saying this morning was reminding us of this, that we want to know and worship Jesus as he really is. We want to see him as he truly is and worship the real Jesus. That's so important because I think we can tend to hold on to certain aspects of Jesus or kind of worship a Jesus of our own imagination if we're not careful. We kind of project who we want Jesus to be. But we need the Jesus who is the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Scripture, the Jesus revealed by the Holy Spirit, the Jesus who is Christ and Son and Lord. And so when people say they believe in Jesus, I think um, we need to ask, what do they mean? And maybe more specifically, who do they mean? When we say we believe in Jesus, which Jesus are we talking about? Do, what do we mean by that, that we, we would call ourselves followers of Jesus? Do we mean that we go to church? Do we mean that we're baptized? Do we mean that we're American? All these things kind of get mixed up with Jesus. And I think for what's happened for many people in our culture, and even within the church, is that we, we begin to identify ourselves as Christians, as those who believe in Christ, but we never come to places where we actually acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. Acknowledge him as the Son. Acknowledge him as the Lord. We never say, yes, Lord, I need a Savior. Sometimes we can come to Jesus and we never surrender control to him as our actual Lord. And that's what, that's what we need. That's the Jesus we desperately need, who is Son, who is Savior, who is Lord. And some of us, I think, have said yes to Jesus as Savior, but not Jesus as Lord. We've never really given him authority to run our lives. Obedience to Jesus in our, in our existence is kind of an optional thing. When it works for us, we do it. But otherwise, maybe we set it aside. I remember um, at my previous church, there was um, 
there was a guy who was struggling in like so many aspects of his life. His things were struggling with work and with his family and with his kids, and he just was having a really hard time. And so he was desperate for the Lord. So he started to seek out the Lord. He started to seek out the Lord, and so he started coming to worship for the first time. He, he started uh, joining a small group. He, he and I started getting coffee on a regular basis to, to talk through the Gospel of John. He was, he was desperate, and so he was seeking out the Lord's help. And then all of a sudden, he just stopped. He stopped worshiping on Sunday. He didn't disappeared. He, he stood me up for coffee a few times, didn't return some calls. It just all stopped. And then finally, I, I was able to get him uh, on the phone. We went and grabbed lunch and just caught up. And I just expressed, I was like, man, I'm just concerned about you. I just know you had a lot of hard things going on, and you just kind of disappeared. And so is everything okay? And I'll never forget what he said. He, he, said, he said, actually, things are going really great. In fact, that's why I've not been coming, because I just don't feel like I need God now like I did before. And I just listened to that, and my, my heart broke for him. My heart really broke for him. But I'll tell you what, I, I had respect for the fact that he was honest. And, and what I mean by that is I, I, I think the truth is, and I've thought about this this week, even in my own life, that is such a temptation, right? Isn't it it's such a temptation to, to look for the Lord, to lean into the Lord, to seek the Lord as a Savior only when we feel like we really need him, but otherwise we take charge, I got this, and I'll call you when I need you. At least he had the nerve to say it, right? I think sometimes we function that way, even without realizing it. And so to live with Jesus as Lord is is a daily thing, daily surrendering to him. It's living under the lordship of Jesus. It's a process. It's a journey. It's not be perfect now, today. It's, it's seek the Lord to form you and shape you into the likeness of Christ. It's saying, God, would you help me today give more of myself over to you? Would you help my life please you and glorify you? It's to pray daily and ask the Lord daily and seek him daily, asking what he wants, obeying his word and devoting your life to his good and perfect will for you. It's to live in a holy fear of God Almighty, I think some of us who have lordship with Jesus issues, it's because we, we take Jesus too lightly, we take him for granted. We need to ask ourselves, am, am I living with you as the Lord, God Almighty of everything, or am I trying to run the show? And so some of us have that issue. I think some of us have a very different issue when it comes to Jesus and our relationship with him. I think some of us see Jesus as Lord, but we have a hard time seeing him as the compassionate, forgiving, and merciful Savior that we need. So we set out to kind of try to save ourselves through performing well or winning others' approval or, or succeeding in some way in the world. We're, we're trying to earn God's love in some way. And by that, we avoid a real relationship with Jesus because we live in this fear of failing God or of disappointing God. And we get stuck in these cycles of, of, of shame and of guilt. How could God really love me? We play this game of who we are on the outside versus who we are on the inside. And we can't believe that God could really love us. And God says, I love you. I do love you. And I've demonstrated that in the gift of my son. I made you, I choose you, I forgive you. And all you have to do to know that's true is to look at the life, death, and resurrection 
of my son Jesus. He's the Lord, and he's the Savior. He's the Son of God, and we need that Jesus. We need the whole Jesus uh, in our lives. So I, I think that's why um, this is so important. And the other reason I think you know, understanding the whole Jesus is important because the world desperately needs this whole Jesus, the real Jesus right now. The world needs it. John 1.14 says that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entered into our broken world, and how did he do it? He took on flesh, and he dwelt among us. He was fully God, and he was fully human, full of grace and truth. That's what John 1.14 says. And so this is a picture of what it means to have Jesus entering into darkness, entering into the world that needs a Savior. It's the incarnation. It's that God took on flesh. Again, that he was fully God and fully man. The word took on flesh and dwelt among us, and he has promised that he will be with us to the very end of the age. His spirit is with us. His spirit is in us, which means, in a way, we have the incarnate Jesus in us, dwelling in us as the church. And I think that's so important because just as God sent Jesus into the world to demonstrate the love of God for sinners and to push back darkness, so he sends us into the world to do the same. His life is in us and his mission is our mission. And right now there's a lot of darkness in the world. There's a lot of darkness that I think we can feel because of what we've been through over the past year, because of the state of some things in our nation and our culture. It's been a difficult year. And so I think even as things like masks are coming off and there's a sense in which we're beginning to emerge from some of this uncertainty and difficulty, I think the past year has left its mark on us. I really think we're, we're still dealing with that. And we need the Lord to help us with that. A year of, of fear and confusion and division, I would say, has left many of us feeling unsafe about things, uncertain about things around us. We, we can feel that things are better, but they're still not the way they should be in so many ways. I mean, this is true across businesses, across institutions, across schools, across the church. This is just, this is what it feels like. There's a restlessness in our culture right now. There's a frustration. There's a spirit of discontent and division at work around us. And in moments like these, this is what I think we're tempted to do. We're tempted in moments like this to, to turn our gaze inward, to turn our gaze from Christ and become inward focused, to, to go from being Christ-centered to self-centered. And in that, we become critical of ourselves and we can become critical of others and divided and frustrated and impatient. I think that's what, what can happen. And in this moment, I think we are tempted because we feel all of that. We're tempted to look. We're tempted to look for quick fixes. We're, we're tempted to look for scapegoats, easy explanations and reasons for all that, this that we're feeling. And I think we're tempted to build up walls to try to shut out the world, to retreat to a place where we can, we can try to feel safe again in a world that's proved that it's not safe. But I would just say that response is not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Jesus. When we live with Jesus as Savior and Lord, we can, we can actually experience, even in the midst of really difficult moments of history and of life, patience and graciousness with ourselves 
and with one another. We can actually put down this burden, I think, that we feel challenged to take up to be uh, the hero in this moment or to, to see ourselves as a victim in this moment. And we don't have to because Jesus is Savior. He, he, he's taking care of things. It's going to be okay. And he's Lord. He's in control of things. We don't have to be the hero. We don't have to be the victim. And here's the thing. When Jesus saw the darkness, what was his response? When we look around and see the darkness, what's our response? What was Jesus' response? It was not to step back. It was to enter in. It was to enter into the darkness. And he calls us to do the same. To him, the call was to push back the darkness. And that's the call for us now. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're seeking. That's what we're asking for. We gather here to push back the darkness, whether it's the darkness in our minds or in our bodies or in our lives or in our neighborhoods or our city or our world. We are pushing back the darkness by answering the call to proclaim the good news of his kingdom come. We push back the darkness of the world around us. We are called to do that because we're called to do what Jesus did and he is in us and he is leading us into it. We lay down our lives as Christ laid down his life. We lay it down one for another. We love our neighbors, even our enemies at great cost to ourselves. That's what it looks like. And right now is not a time to pull back. It's not a time to retreat. It's not a time to allow the enemy to divide and confuse and bring uncertainty. We enter into the world with confidence rooted and the Christ who is, the Christ who has come, who is the Son of God and is Lord over all. We need him, and the world needs him, and so we need to seek him. The question is, who do you say Jesus is? Who is he in your life? Who is he in our world? He is Jesus the Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. That's who he is, and that's who we worship.